All right, morning, everyone. Good to see you. Why don't you open your Bibles to Luke 14? Go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. On Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's Gospel verse by verse, and we find ourselves chapter 14, verse 26. But we'll go ahead and start at verse 25 for context. So Luke 14, 25, Jesus says, or no, excuse me, Luke says, Now great crowds accompanied him, this is Jesus, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And you may be seated. Father, such challenging words we have reached this morning. I don't know how many times I've read them over the last few weeks or months, and each time I'm just struck by the statement that Jesus made to these large crowds about discipleship, which is really what these verses are about and what's involved in following him. And as we look this morning at his words regarding our family members and hating them, uh, help us to understand what Jesus meant and, and what he didn't mean, and apply this to our lives, Lord, in our, as we follow Christ and live as his disciples. And I pray if there's anyone here who is not a disciple of Christ, or perhaps like many of these followers of his are ones who would turn back, then I pray they would appreciate the seriousness of these verses, and perhaps they would be turned back, or they would make a a commitment to Christ, that you would bring about salvation in their hearts, but we wouldn't want anyone to remain on the fence because we don't think, because it's so evident in these verses, Jesus didn't want anyone to remain on the fence. He, he clearly wanted a decision one way or the other, Lord, and so we pray that would be the case for everyone here today and, and over the coming weeks as we work our way through these these precious verses about the the strong challenge to follow Christ. And so I thank you for this time, Lord. Use me as your vessel, always feeling somewhat inadequate to do justice to them, but I pray for your glory and honor that you would just speak through me and that everything you want delivered and unpacked from Christ's words um, would reach your people. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I think these verses contain the clearest passage uh, or clearest teaching on discipleship in all of Scripture. In our last sermon in Luke's Gospel, we talked about how it looks like Jesus actually tried to discourage people from following him. I contrasted him with military recruiters who say just about anything to people to get them to, or can seem that way, at least many of them. Not every military recruiter is is a deceiver, but many of them tempted to make promises that just to get people to sign on the dotted line. We looked at a few accounts of Jesus saying things that were so shocking, uh, countless people did end up turning back from him as a result. And this account is similar. Notice it says that great crowds were following him. Now, I can't say how many people this was, but if we consider that there were thousands that he fed miraculously on uh, at least two occasions, and then those people went and told their friends who told their friends, it wouldn't be too much to think that the great crowds here numbered in the thousands or perhaps even the 10,000s. Now, if you think about what this looked like, let me ask you, what would you expect many popular religious leaders to be thinking? Well, this is incredible. Look at how many people are following me. I better make sure that I don't say something that would upset them 
and cause them to turn away. Or this is wonderful. What encouraging thing can I communicate that will cause them to want to continue following me and will probably even send them to invite their friends to come out and hear all the other things that I have to say. But Jesus's desire was never to build the largest crowd possible. It's evident that he wanted to trim the fat, and he knew when these numbers were inflated, he wanted true disciples, and so he never adapted his message to make it smoother or softer for people. He wasn't running a popularity contest. He spoke very plainly about the high cost of discipleship. I don't think any plainer in any place else in Scripture than right here in these verses. And he makes several bold commands or demands that would take anyone on the fence or let's say any half-hearted individuals uh, and cause them to turn away. Look at verse 26. This is where we finished in our last sermon. He says, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own, disciple, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And this brings us to lesson one. We must love Jesus more than anyone else. We must love Jesus more than anyone else. This instruction was especially appropriate in Jesus' day because choosing to follow him could result in what? It could result in rejection by family members. Did someone say death? It could result in persecution, and it could even result in death. And so if there were individuals who were only half-heartedly committed to Christ, you can imagine what this statement would do to them. This would be the test. And so what can this look like in our lives, where I don't think that any of us face death death as a result, but we could face lost relationships, at least at this point in in our our church's history, or at least in the United States, I don't think that we're being persecuted for our faith, but to be a follower of Christ can mean rejection from family members who are not believers. You tell them you're a Christian, and how do they respond? They might respond as though you hate them, because now you love Jesus more than them. They act like you have turned your back on them. And so if we're going to follow Christ, then we must be willing to even allow some relationships with our family members to be severed in our commitment to Christ. And so let's talk about what exactly Jesus meant when he said this, because I think we can guess that he didn't mean this as literally as it sounds. We're not literally to hate our parents, spouse, children, siblings, because that would contradict other verses in Scripture. And I'm sure some of them come to mind. 1 Timothy 5.8 says that an individual who would not care for his own family is worse than what? I mean, I don't even know what's worse than an unbeliever, right? And, And Paul says that if a man won't care for his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. So Paul is not going to command us to care for our family members and then Jesus turn around and tell us to hate our family members unless Jesus doesn't mean it as literally as it sounds. What did Jesus tell us to do with our enemies? Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies. So if Jesus tells us to love our enemies, he isn't going to tell us to hate our family members, or at least not tell us that and actually mean it. And so it begs the question, what did he mean? How do we explain this? Jesus isn't referring to a literal emotional hatred. If you write in your Bible, you can circle the word hate and draw a little line and write love less. If you're in your Bible, you can circle the word hate, draw a little line, and write the word love, or words, love less. <laughs> Listen to the way it's worded in the parallel account in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 10, 37, Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so the idea is Jesus is saying, 
we must love him more than them or we must love them less than him in scripture the word hate it doesn't always mean hate it often means to love less and here's a few examples just so you don't think this is my opinion in the deuteronomy you don't have to turn there but in deuteronomy 21 15 i want to go through this pretty quickly a man should not have uh, two wives but there is instruction here for a man who put himself in this situation regarding the treatment of these two wives and then listen to what uh, the law said if a man has two wives the one loved and the other hated and it doesn't literally mean that a man loves one wife and then hates the other one the idea is that if he's married to two women he is not going to be able to love them equally and there's one that he will love more and one that he will love less and the one that he loves less is the one who's said to be hated if a man has two wives the one loved and the one hated and both and the other hated and both the loved and then it says and the unloved well then he said well i thought we were talking about hated why did it go to the one who's hated and now call her the one who's unloved because these words are being used synonymously to say that the woman is hated is to say that she's loved less or unloved so the loved and the unloved have borne him children and if the firstborn son belongs to the hated referred to the unloved wife then on the day when the husband assigns possessions as an inheritance to his sons he may not treat the son of a loved the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the hated or unloved who is the firstborn but he shall acknowledge the firstborn the son of the hated or unloved by giving him a double portion of all he has for he's the first fruits of his strength and so the idea is a man could often god's law in the old testament is is rectifying what was wrong uh, commonly wrong culturally and so men would be polygamous and so god's law speaks to that situation and and doesn't defend the situation whatsoever but says that if a man is in this situation he must strive to treat the two women equally or and their children equally which is what the verses are about another example or actually an actual example of this genesis 29 verse 30 jacob loved rachel more than leah and served laban for another seven years when the lord saw that leah was hated it doesn't say unloved because unloved is being used synonymously with hated when god saw that leah was hated he opened her womb but rachel was barren jacob didn't literally hate uh, leah but he loved her less and so that's what it says briefly turn to the right to luke 16 13. no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve God and money now this doesn't literally mean that someone's going to have one master that they love and another that they hate instead it means that we're not going to be able to love two masters equally and we're going to end up loving one more than the other and the one that's loved less is said to be hated now to put all this together just as Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah uh, just as God said that he loved Jacob more than Esau we must love Christ more than we love our own family members now what about in this verse when Jesus talks about hating our own lives it's not talking or encouraging us to be suicidal or or enter some sort of depression instead Jesus is just saying that we must put him ahead of ourselves so not only would we put Christ ahead of our our family members those closest to us we would even put Christ ahead of ourselves our lives and what does this look like 
it looks like waking up each day and asking not what we want, but asking what Christ wants for us. It looks like going through this life and holding our desires and our passions loosely and saying, Lord, this could be what I desire, but is this what you desire for me? If that be the case, then deny what I want for myself and give me what you know is best for me. Or it could look like saying, Lord, I don't want this for my life, but not my will be done, like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't desire this. I hope this would not be the case for me, but if you know that this is what's best or this is what would bring you the most glory and honor, then please introduce this into my life. Very difficult thing to pray because we can be afraid of those things that God might introduce, but this is what it means to do here what Jesus is saying, to say, use my life in the way that brings you the most glory and honor, regardless of what that looks like for me or introduces as a circumstance for me. Now, let me ask you a question that you might have been asking. Why does Jesus use this language? I wasn't trying to bore you or sound meticulous going through those different examples in Deuteronomy and then in the Genesis about love and hate. I was just trying to make the point so that you would not see that it's my opinion that when Jesus says to hate these people, that he really means we must love him more than them or they must be loved less than him. And so it begs the question, if that's what Jesus is trying to communicate, why doesn't he just use different language and say, you must love me more than them, versus saying you must hate these people? And my suspicion is it relates to the difficulty associated with defining something without a standard, or it relates to the difficulty associated with defining things because it's relative. And I'll give you an illustration. That might sound confusing, but bear with me. If I said, raise your hand if this church building is, actually, let's do it. Raise your hand if this church building is big. You act, okay, some of you raised your hand. You made that determination that this church building is big because you compared it to something that is smaller. If I said, because you could have kept your hand down because you could have said, well, this church building is small compared to a mountain. Or you could have said this church building is big compared to a pencil. So it's really an issue of relativity. And without a standard for the comparison, then there's not really any way to define certain things. And what Jesus wants to define in these verses is our love for him or our lack of love for him. And so if Jesus said, you must love me, that's a, there's no standard. We can all find things that would allow us to feel convinced that we love Jesus because there are plenty of things in our lives that we recognize we love less than him. We can easily say, oh, I know that I love Jesus because I love him more than I love my car. Or I know I love Jesus because I love him more than I love sports. Or I love Jesus because I know, or I know I love him because I love him more than, than I love chocolate. Or fill in the blank with whatever it is that we would put there that would allow us to feel good about our love for him. So what does Jesus do? He basically gives us a standard. And he says that it's not sports and it's not chocolate. It's the highest standard that he could possibly provide to reveal whether we love him. He said, you must love me so much that in comparison or when contrasted with the most important relationships in your life or those people that you love the most, it would appear as though you what them? Hate them. So he's creating this contrast. He's saying you would love me so much more than them that it would appear as though you hate them. And some family members feel that way. In fact, and I, 
and I mean this sincerely, if you have the love for Christ that he discusses here, and you have family members who are unbelievers, they probably should feel at times like you hate them when they find you choosing Christ over them. If you were an unbeliever from an unbelieving family and you became a Christian and your family noticed no difference in your relationship with them or no contrast between your relationship with them and your relationship with Christ, then there's probably something wrong. It's actually a wonderful thing for family members to notice that contrast or that distinction so they can see the change. That is, It's not to say you're going to be unkind or unfaithful or cruel to any of these people, but it is to say that you would hold to Christ in such a way that they would be able to recognize that there is now a supreme relationship in your life that trumps even the relationships you've had with all of them. And if we want to know how important it is to love Jesus, just listen to this verse, Matthew 25, excuse me, Matthew 22, 35, a lawyer asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And what did he say? You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And so that is how important it is to love the Lord. It is the most important command in all of Scripture. Now, maybe you're saying this. Well, I'm convicted. I'm listening to you say this. I can, I can see these verses about the importance of us loving Christ more than anyone else. And, and then you say, but I don't know how because I cannot control my feelings. I can want to love Jesus more than I love these people, but I cannot control my emotions. I cannot control the way I feel about Christ. I can't make sure that I feel more for him than I do for my wife or my husband or my parents or my children. Well, here's the thing. It is absolutely true that you cannot control the way you feel. You cannot make yourself feel differently. Now, there are steps you can take or actions you can engage in and hope that your feelings or emotions follow those actions. For example, if you despise someone and you begin to be nice to them, your feelings and emotions can follow, but you can't suddenly try try hard enough, white-knuckle it, and begin to feel differently. But what can you control? Your actions. And what is love? Is love a feeling or is love actions? This brings us to lesson two. Love is actions versus feelings. Love is actions versus feelings. If we're going to understand what it means to love Jesus as he describes or to love him more than we love anyone else in our lives, then we must understand what it means to love. And this means dispelling the understanding of love that has been pushed on us from our culture, which is completely contradictory to the Bible's presentation or description of love. Our culture says that love is a feeling, and we have personified this so much so that there is a little baby that shoots you with a bow and arrow, and you can't help but be shot. Apparently, you can't miss this arrow. You're just going through your life, and then you're shot, and you suddenly feel love for someone. You fall in love, and this is also why you can fall out of love, because love is nothing more than a feeling or emotion that comes or goes. You have absolutely no control of it, and this is what allows people to say terribly sinful things 
If a man says, I no longer feel love for my wife, and that is why I am going to divorce her, or I had this relationship with this other woman because I no longer felt love for my wife, and I began to feel love for this other woman, he's demonstrating that he has no idea what the Bible says about love. Even though I'm married, I couldn't help falling in love with this person at my work. It wasn't my fault. I did not try to make it happen. It just happened as we began to have longer conversations with each other in the lunchroom. I no longer love my spouse. I wish I did, but I don't, and I can't do anything about it simply because I cannot control the way I feel. It wasn't my fault that I fell out of love with my wife. Those are the sinful things people can say when they have such an unbiblical understanding of love. Scripture presents love completely oppositely of this as a choice. It is an act of the will. It would be the the best way for you to understand love is that it is an act of the will. We choose whether we love people or not. Think about the verse I mentioned earlier, love your enemies. Could Jesus tell us to love our enemies if love was a feeling? No, he absolutely could not. Because we don't have strong feelings for people, actually, I was going to say we don't have strong feelings for our enemies. We might have strong feelings for our enemies, but they're not positive feelings, are they? They're negative feelings. The reason that Jesus can't, when Jesus commands us to love our enemies, did you know that has nothing to do with the way you feel toward them? When Jesus says, love your enemies, it has everything to do with the way that you act toward them or respond toward them. If, if he was commanding us to feel a certain way toward our enemies, that would be a command that we could not obey. When Christ commands or when we're commanded as husbands to love our wives as, life, as Christ himself loves the church, a man can choose to do that absolutely com- or completely independent of how he feels toward his wife. A man could be totally furious with his wife, and in that moment, he can still choose to love his wife. If Christ could lay down his life for his enemies, a man can choose to love his wife even when he's angry at her. If we understand that love is actions which we can control, then we understand how we can love our enemies and how we can love Christ. We choose to be kind to them even if we perhaps couldn't stand them. Think about 1 Corinthians, most common, or 1 Corinthians 13 in particular, most commonly known as the love chapter, the chapter that in all of Scripture seems to define love for us uh, the clearest. If love was a feeling, it would be filled with all of these adjectives or describing words, words that describe our feelings or emotions. Instead, 1 Corinthians 13 is filled with what? Not quite a grammar lesson, but verbs or action words love is what patient it's kind and then it defines love by what it's not it doesn't envy it doesn't boast it's not arrogant it doesn't insist on having its own way all of these it's not irritable or resentful it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing so all of these actions are what define love because it is verbs or behaviors think about this verse romans 9 13 as it is written Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now that's a, a quote of Malachi chapter 1 verses, from two, verses 2 and 3. Now it's not literally that God hated Esau, but why does it say that God loved 
Jacob and hated Esau? Well, because he did more for Jacob. It is shown through his actions toward Jacob, putting Jacob in the messianic line, blessing him more than he blessed Esau. His actions were greater for Jacob than Esau. He chose him to be one of the patriarchs. He blessed him considerably more than he blessed Esau. And what's interesting is God did bless Esau considerably, but he blessed Jacob even more. His actions were greater toward Jacob, which is why it says that he loved Jacob. He loved Esau less by his actions, which is why it says that he hated Esau. It wasn't referring to an actual emotional hatred, I don't believe, toward Esau, although Esau was a profane man, Hebrews 12 says, so perhaps there was an amount of hostility toward him, but it's still referring to his actions toward him that identify him as hating him. As reflecting on this, that love without actions is like faith without works. Listen to how James describes this. James 2.14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith, but he does not have works? Or we could say, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has love, but he doesn't have actions to accompany that love. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. Or we could say, one of you says to them, I love you very much, right? But there's no actions accompanying it. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Or we could say, love by itself, if it does not have actions, is dead. Now, let me connect the dots. If we're to love Jesus more than family members and love is actions versus a feeling, then for Jesus to tell us to love him more than family members is to tell us to be willing to do more for him or have greater actions for him than even those closest to us or that we might hold dearest. And this brings us to lesson three. Our obedience demonstrates our love for Christ. Our obedience demonstrates our love for Christ. Now, there is a question I suspect that some of you might be having, or perhaps even an objection, that I just want to address right now so that you can hear the rest of this sermon without this nagging you, and it's kind of like this. Are you saying, Pastor Scott that there are no feelings or emotions involved in our relationships with Christ. That is not what I'm saying at all. And I'll be the first person to say that all of us at different times, while sitting through worship services, while singing songs about what Christ has done for us, while reflecting on the communion devotion, or reading God's Word at home, or simply driving down the road and then just being caught up in that moment where we consider what Christ was willing to do for us, who cannot at times be overcome by feelings and emotions for him. And so I'm not denying whatsoever or minimizing the significance of feelings and emotions or thankfulness and appreciation for Christ. And I think scripture supports this. Psalm 42 verse 1, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? I mean, considerable feelings and emotions behind that. I can read that and be convicted that my soul doesn't pant or thirst more for God. Or when we sing that song as the deer pants for the water and wonder, is my, is my heart like that for Christ? Do I have 
that kind of affection for him. So I'm not denying feelings or emotions, but I am saying this. If the feelings and emotions do not produce actions in our lives, then they seem to be similar to faith without works or an essentially meaningless or empty love. Let me share why I think this is so important. Because we've been conditioned by our culture to view love as a feeling, it can make our relationship with Jesus very, very difficult. Because Jesus is not a person that we can physically talk to, physically see, or physically have a relationship with. And so it is very easy to wonder, well, if love is a feeling or emotion, how, how can I have these feelings and emotions for this person that I cannot physically see? I can, it's so much easier to have the feelings and emotions for someone physically that you can have a relationship with. But here's the thing. If you can understand what it really means to love Christ and you can move away from that understanding of feelings and emotions— to obedience and actions, then you can understand what it means to obey some of these verses. To further emphasize this, look what Jesus says we should be willing to do for him in the very next verse, Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So here's the point. If Jesus was talking about love and it was a feeling, he would say, whoever does not think about me all the time and long for me all the time. But he doesn't say that. He goes to an action, and he says, if you really love me, then it's not how you feel. It's what you're willing to do for me. You're willing to pick up your cross and come after me. And if you're not willing to do that, he doesn't say if you're not willing to feel that way, but you're not willing to do that, you can't be my disciple. Go ahead and turn one book to the right to John 14. We won't return to Luke. John 14. And take a look at verse 15. We get to hear it directly from Jesus himself. If you love me, and if you just pause right there, if love was a feeling, what would he say? You will feel this way about me, or you will think about me all the time. Instead, he says, if you love me, you will obey or keep my commandments. So it seems that Christ said very clearly that our obedience is the revelation of our love for him. What, what would be love for Christ without obedience? I would say it would be hypocrisy. And it is not to say that any of us ever obey Christ as well as, well, it's not to say any of us ever obey Christ perfectly, as well as we should, as well as any of us would want. But if there's a life that is rarely ever characterized, it's like I can tell you how much I love Katie. And I believe that you believe me when I say that. But if my life or relationship with her was characterized by constant mistreatment, you would quickly question the sincerity of my love for Katie. But if you could see that although I'm a flawed husband and I don't always treat Katie as well as I should, which is the case, but you can hopefully see a, a relationship that is characterized by 
actions that reveal love for her, then you can believe that statement I would make about her. And it's the same in our relationships with Christ. Look at John 15, verse 10, the next chapter. Chapter 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So again, we see Christ associating obedience with love, so much so that he said our relationship with him should look like his relationship with his Father, which was characterized by perfect obedience— And our relationship with Christ will look like Christ's relationship with his Father if we obey Christ, although never as perfectly as he obeyed his Father. And and I'll just be candid with you. One of the reasons that I think this is so significant relates to somewhat of a charismatic background that I came from. I I wouldn't go as far as, you know, uh, I wasn't necessarily Pentecostal or anything. It was more some of the groups that I was associated with at that time, early in my Christian life, um, there, was a, there seemed to be, during our times together, these, these very dramatic, emotional uh, Bible studies, or I, don't, I, don't, I almost hesitate to call them Bible studies or prayer times, and I felt like they were characterized more by our emotions and feelings during those moments, and again, I'm not minimizing or denying that there are considerable emotions or feelings in our relationship with Christ, but the concern to me was that some of these same people, myself at times, would leave these Bible studies that might take place on a weekend and then go out that week and have lives that were characterized by disobedience. And so while in the presence of other Christians, we could put on an, uh, an incredible show, incredible demonstration of, of emotion and passion for Christ, I mean, with the, you know, the arms raised and the crying and, and, and the eyes closed, and, and I'm not even commenting on that, but I'm just saying if this is then followed by a life of disobedience, don't give me this. Don't give Christ that. That's that's hypocritical. That's hypocrisy. A love for Christ is not shown or characterized by emotional experiences. It is characterized by a consistent, faithful, steady life. You can take all of the emotionally charged people, and if they don't have a life that is then characterized by service and obedience to Christ— then again, that is hypocrisy. There can be some people who might not look emotional, but they could be faithful, they could be steady servants of Christ for decades. And I believe those are the people who are demonstrating their love for Christ. And that's one of the reasons, and I might be going on kind of, kind of long here, but I become concerned by some of the music we listen to. I don't mean we as in the church during our worship service, but some of the music that I believe is popularized and causes Christians' relationships with Christ to be characterized more by feelings and emotions than obedience. And so what if a song was singing about loving Christ, but instead of, des- instead of then describing feelings and emotions, it described what? Sacrifice, self-sacrifice self-denial, picking up your cross. Or let me say this. What if some of the most popular music today sounded like these verses? You think those would be popular songs? No, because they wouldn't make people feel a certain way. So be careful about what you're feeding your mind 
and your heart because it can cause you to believe the opposite of what the Bible says, that a Christian life is characterized more by feelings and emotions than it is by obedience and actions. Look at the sacrifice that Jesus says, the self-denial that should be involved in our relationships with him in these verses to understand what discipleship truly means. Now, look one chapter to the right. Did I tell you to turn to John 15, verse 10? We already looked at that, right? Now skip to verse 13 as we get ready to shift gears. It says, Greater love has no one than this. So we know that after Jesus says these words, he's going to tell us what the greatest demonstration of love is. And he says, it's laying down your life for your friends which again shows us there's no hint of feelings, there's no hint of emotions here. It is all about actions, actions that would even lead to death. So according to this verse, there is no greater demonstration of love than being willing to lay down your life for someone else. And this is what Jesus did for us, and it brings us to our last lesson. We love Jesus because he first loved us with his actions. We love Jesus because he first loved us with actions. <laughs> and then turn your Bible to 1 John 4.10. 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4. Toward the end of your Bibles, right before Jude, which is right before Revelation. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And this verse begins with the words, in this is love, or this is love. So we know that right after Jesus, or right after John says this, he is going to tell us what love is. And again, if love was a feeling, we would expect John to say, in this is love, that feeling you have that's different than any other feeling you've ever had. Have you ever had the world describe love to you? How does the world... Ex- the world wants you to understand love, and so they say something like, you know you're in love when you feel differently toward this person than you've ever felt toward anyone before, and that's when you know that you're in love. Or love is when you just can't think of anyone else. John says this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and then here's the action, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so again, we see love defined, and it is actions. In this case, the action of God himself sending his son. So this verse defines love, and it says that this is what God was willing to do in his love for us, being willing to give his son. The very familiar verse, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. And just think of all the things that could be said there. That would be true. For God so loved the world, He gave us beautiful trees, a wonderful creation to live and experience. And we were driving this past week. I took my children to this to this debate, and I hadn't made the drive before out to out to toward eastern Washington on 84, and you know the river on the left and the mountains on the right. And I was like, just repeatedly telling my kids, "Wow, this is so beautiful. This is incredible that God lets us live in such a creation." Or then, for God to love the world, He gave us marriage. What an incredible gift that is, or gives us children, or gives us a church with wonderful friends and, and 
brothers and sisters in Christ, allows us to be part of a spiritual family. Those are wonderful things. For God so loved the world, he gave us those things. None of them are mentioned. Instead, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And then suddenly, as soon as this, you're reading this and it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, suddenly the trees, the gorge, the river, the mountains, even marriage, even children, even the church is minimized by this contrast that God would give his own son for us. Just think about that for a moment. We take it for granted. But reflect on that God was willing to give his own son that he had existed in fellowship with through all of eternity past for our sins. First John, now look at verse 19. We love because he first loved us. And I want to look at this because we spent much of the beginning of the sermon talking about our obedience and sacrifice for Christ. And I don't, I'm, so you say, well, I don't really want to have a man-centered sermon. I have a man-centered sermon when we're looking at um, commands, when we're looking at application, when we're looking at things that Jesus says to us. There's no way except that in applying these verses, we would talk about our responsibility. But then I also want us to see here, because when we talk so much about what we sacrifice or what we do or how well we obey, we can start to feel a little what? Proud. And, and it kinda, you kind of move across the spectrum, and we sort of forget about what God has done for us because we're focused so much on what we should do for God. And so I really wanted us to see this in the same chapter, 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. Romans 5, 8, God showed his love that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So let me ask you this. If you have loved Christ by your actions, why did you? Because he loved you first. You have always, only, ever done anything for Christ because of what he was first willing to do for us. He initiated. He began the relationship. We responded. We have only loved Christ because he first loved us. I want to share a story with you that my daughter Rhea gave me permission to share from a few years ago. We were having this conversation, and I guess I would say she was somewhat testing my love for her because she's presenting these scenarios to me, saying, Daddy, would you love me if I did this? And in her young mind, she was like five or six, she came up with wicked things like writing on the wall with a crayon. And so I, I thought about it, and I said, yeah, I think I could still love you if you wrote on the wall with a crayon. But probably not a permanent marker. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> if it's a Sharpie, you're pushing it, you know? So she moves further and further in these tests of my love for her until... I finally just said, Rhea, you know what? You could never do anything that would cause me to love you less or love you more. You could hurt me. You could disappoint me. You could frustrate me. But you could never cause me to love you less. And essentially, she was asking this. Daddy, is your love 
for me based on my actions. If I act badly enough, will you love me less or even stop loving me completely? And I mention this because Rhea's questions demonstrate what is the exact opposite of God's love for us. God's love for us is not at all based on our actions. If his love for us was based on our actions, I would hate to think what that would be like. I don't, I don't even want to fathom it. Instead, God's love for us is based on Christ's actions for us. God's love for you, if you're in Christ, is based on what Christ has done for you. And for that reason, God's love for you can never change. Because what Christ has done, he has done. It is finished, and it is unchanging. And so his love, his affection, his election, his choice, his, he has set his love on you based on what Christ has done. And because that can never change, Christ's love for you and affection for you can never change. That's why we can read this, Romans eight thirty eight. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in or because of. Now, why? Why can we never be separated from God's love? Because of Christ Jesus, our Lord. What he has done for us was finished on the cross, and because of that, God's love for us can never change. And I want to conclude with this. If you're not a Christian and you don't become one before you die, you will stand before God and he will be a terrifying judge. One who, is, who punishes you for your sins because you refused to repent and put your faith in Christ. You've heard the gospel. If you sit here today, you've heard the gospel repeatedly. Christ would have taken the punishment for your sins, but you would not repent and believe. But if you are a Christian, you will face God, not as a terrifying judge, but as a loving Heavenly Father, rejoicing at seeing his son or daughter, whom he sees through the lens of his son, Jesus Christ. When God the Father looks at me, he sees me with the same perfect righteousness of his son, not because I have ever approached that righteousness one moment of my life, but because he sees me in Christ and through what Christ has done for me. God's love can never be improved upon. He could never love you less. He could never love you more because it is already a perfect love. I'll be up front after service. Actually, we have the two statements after service, but then after that, I will still be up front after service. The other elders will be up front after service too. I'd consider it, and I believe the other elders would uh, consider it a privilege as well to have the opportunity to speak with you and answer any questions. Father, we thank you for your unending, unchanging love for us, not because of anything we've done or could do, but because of what Christ has done for us. And so our obedience to Christ is not, unlike all of the false religions of the world, is not for our salvation. We do not serve or obey or work for Christ to, to be saved. 
we count it a privilege to love Christ, to obey Christ because of our love for him or to demonstrate our love for him. Help us to be vessels that are obedient and that live lives that are pleasing to you uh, in, in response to what Christ has done for us. Thank you for loving us first, Father. Thank you for giving your sons for our sins and seeing us through, through his very righteousness. And if there is anyone here today who is not in Christ, then I pray they would be convicted and that you would bring about salvation in their hearts. Lord, we thank you for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.